This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today's show is about the Pacific. It's about the Green Climate Fund, how we can invest in renewable energy over there and stop investing in new coal and gas here. You will hear President Onote Tong from Kiribati and President Tommy Remengesau from Palau. Also, Ebony Bennett and Richie Mersian will host this forum from the Australia Institute. To get us in the mood, here's a song from Small Island Big Sound. Song is Ta Utama, which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet? Oh, yeah. 
Kum Alep. If this is a story about our islands, it is a story for the whole world. This year, we have two very special guests, and I'll ask our Executive Director, Dr. Richard Dennis, to welcome them. But first, if I could acknowledge our partners, the Pacific Elders Voice and the Edmund Rice Centre for helping to make this event happen. We're delighted to have our guests today. I know a number of friends from the Pacific Island nations are tuning in. Thank you for joining us as well. Richard, over to you. Uh, thanks, Ebony, and it's a real privilege today to, to welcome our two guests. Um, uh, let me start by introducing my old friend, President Anote Tong. Uh, president Tong was president of Kiribati for uh, a constitutional maximum of three terms uh, between 2003 and 2016. Um, and during that time, he played an incredible role, uh, not just within Kiribati and the Pacific, but around the world, highlighting the existential threat of climate change to low-lying island states like Kiribati. Uh, I was very fortunate to get to know President Tong in the lead up to uh, the Paris Climate Convention in, back in 2015, uh, when the Australia Institute and he worked closely together on what was then the No New Coal Mines campaign, which culminated in President Tong writing to literally every world leader in the lead up to Paris, asking them to support his call uh, and in turn the Pacific's call uh, for a ban on old new lines. Uh, it's a simple idea now. I assure you it was radical back in the day, uh, back when everyone was obsessed with percentages and complicated accounting to ask for something so simple uh, for, for the small number of coal exporting countries to stop building coal mines uh, was radical. But while it was great when, uh, when we saw other Pacific leaders step in and it was great when Sir Nicholas Stern signed up, there was real excitement in Australia when uh, former Wallabies captain David Pocock went on to be one of the first to endorse the call, which of course, made it front page news in Australia. So uh, thank you for being uh, here in Australia, still doing your advocacy, uh, President Tong. It's also my great privilege to introduce uh, former president of Palau, Tommy Remen Gausau Jr. Uh, he was also a 16 year president of Palau. It's just incredible that, uh, that we, we have people in Australia who have such heritage in their, from their community speaking truth to Australian power about these issues. Not only did he show strong leadership in his own country and around the world when it came to environment and climate issues, uh, he was actually given the UN's, uh, one of their top accolades, the Champion of the Earth Award for his work. Uh, so thank you both for, for being here in Australia, uh, telling not just our audience today, but so many of our parliamentarians, uh, uh, yeah, what the, what the truth of climate inaction looks like uh, in your communities and, of course, around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Um, joining the presidents today is the director of the Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Program and joining me right next to me here in the office, uh, former climate negotiator as well, Richie Merzian. Uh, Anote Tong, Tommy Romengasau, Jr., thank you so much for joining us today. President Tong, if I can start with you and take you back to the Paris Agreement that Richard was talking about there. You wrote to every single world leader back in 2015, telling them that the construction of each new coal mine undermines the spirit and intent of any agreement that we may reach, particularly in the upcoming COP21 in Paris, while stopping new coal mine construction now could make the, uh, will make any agreement reached in Paris truly historical. Did we end up missing out on making Paris a historical moment? And are we any closer now to a global moratorium on new coal mines? Uh, first of all, let me acknowledge the, uh, the elders of the land. And, and of course, um, uh, as we uh, embark on this interaction, we seek the blessings of uh, the elders, uh, past, present, and emerging. And uh, we seek their guidance and uh, blessing in the our endeavors, our the, our, um, the, the mission that we are on on this occasion. Uh, with respect to that question, uh, Bene, it's, um, the, the agreement in Paris itself was historical. I think um, not many of us really believed that we could ever reach agreement, especially after the, the Copenhagen experience. So Paris was truly historical. But at the, at the same time, I think there were always this underlying um, hiccups, okay? There were countries that were not truly uh, committed. Um, but of course, in terms of the coal, I recall being in, in, um, in, in Bonn and going off to Germany to see them, that the coal was still being uh, mined in, in Germany. Now, the question really, are we any closer to uh, banning or not uh, stopping any uh, digging up any of coal? Regrettably, no. And I think uh, that is the sad reality of what we still face. We, the, the, um, the aspirations of what uh, we came away from Paris with are no longer, uh, are not, we're not any closer to achieving those. And I think uh, we can blame many things, including the pandemic, but um, it doesn't look like we'll be meeting those targets with, which we set in 2015. And we're not looking like we will be able to, to uh, meet the uh, less than 1.5 degree rise in global temperature, which is truly unfortunate, especially for those of us, the countries on the front line of climate change. And so we need to relook at that, at what we're doing with coal. We need to re-examine what it means and the implications for not uh, just for countries like, like ours in the Pacific, but for humanity as a whole. Um, the UNFCCC accounting doesn't really require countries like Australia to take responsibility for the emissions of their exported fossil fuels, but legal responsibility is quite different to moral responsibility. Is it a country's, whether it's Australia or any other large exporter of fossil fuels, is it their moral responsibility to deal with or at the very least acknowledge um, the ramifications of their exported fossil fuel emissions? Well, we, we must go back to the origins of that, that legal regime, the, uh, the international legal regime, which set up that uh, agreed that um, the exported uh, uh, coal, is, you're not accountable for the emissions from that. Um, who, who designed those, uh, those uh, laws, okay? Uh, 
I, I, I understand and I'm aware that it's, it's, it's the uh, accounting for, uh, it's, it's very complicated. And uh, for small countries like ours in the Pacific, we don't have the capacity to be able to negotiate on an equal basis with the countries that really are the ones that want to perpetuate what is, what is going on. But uh, let's just be simple, okay? Um, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to, to know that when we are talking about the, the global level emission, which is what is driving uh, global temperature, as a, what is driving sea level to rise, it is not whether you export it or, or, or burn it at home. It's got to be, um, it's the total aggregate uh, of uh, what is being uh, spilled out into the atmosphere. And uh, I, I do not understand how you cannot, why you can, how you can say that uh, the, you are only responsible for the emissions which you burn at home when you are a, a huge exporter of a fossil fuel, in particular coal, and uh, subscribing to the emissions of those countries to whom you export. I think it's got to be well understood that uh, it's about the global level of emission, both including both domestic emissions and those which you export as a country from which you derive revenue and benefits. Okay, you cannot do it. You are deriving. You cannot, you cannot uh, reject responsibility when you are deriving uh, benefits from that. And so, no, I think, I believe that uh, we must take a more moral, if that is what you, and maybe turn the moral obligation, as you call it, into a more binding legal arrangement. I think this is what's sadly uh, missing. Yeah, certainly um, there's, there's not much in the way of uh, legal ramifications or, or bindings at the moment. We're listening to Radio 3CR and the Regional Climate Diplomacy Forum at the Australia Institute. Um, Richie, I know the Australia Institute has undertaken polling um, about this issue. What did it find? Yep. So the, the Australian Institute uh, just picked one electorate in Australia, which was the electorate of Boothby in, in Adelaide, which went from uh, being a Liberal Party seat to a Labor Party seat at the last election and actually asked those voters, do you think Australia, do you think countries um, have a responsibility, some responsibility for the pollution from Australia's gas and coal burnt overseas? And the majority did believe that there was some responsibility to be had. And when we also asked them, well, what should countries do about it at the next UN climate conference, which will take place in Egypt in November, um, the, majority, the majority agreed that world leaders should agree to stop new coal mines. Uh, and so we're seeing right now something that President Tong uh, was pushing ahead of the Paris Climate Agreement really take more resonance now in mainstream climate conversations. And this is, I guess, a broader broader shift that we saw in 2022. Both presidents just, just have been briefing numerous politicians in Canberra, including a number of the politicians, the independents who won on strong climate agendas. And there is a newfound interest in addressing a, a far more wider remit of Australia's responsibility on climate, not just the narrow legal responsibility, but also the responsibility that comes from profiting from selling the problem. Mm -hmm. um, President Romangasau, you have a long history in multilateral efforts to address, uh, in particular, the environment and oceans. What are you hoping world leaders will achieve at the upcoming UN climate conference in Egypt? 
First of all, uh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I join my colleague in also extending our res my respect and uh, uh, honor to the elders, uh, both present and past of this homeland. And uh, first of all, I'm hoping that the, the people come to the table with uh, honesty and um, really a stronger commitment to get things done because we've done we've done talking we've gone way beyond what needs to be done and there's just not enough action to back our commitments and our dear what we need to do uh, when it comes to climate change as we all know we cannot talk about climate change without addressing the ocean and and vice versa so for a reminder that uh, for those islands of the Pacific, we're only 1% land and 99% uh, ocean. So the ocean is really where the impact comes and affects the people, our, our culture, our traditions, our livelihood, our economy, and our sustainable future. So it has to be addressed. The ocean has to be addressed. What do we need to do about the ocean? At the very least, the 30% commitment for all nations to conserve and preserve 30% of their ocean has got to materialize uh, as soon as possible. And there's a, there's a tendency, I know we just uh, touched on it, uh, the legal responsibility are actually loopholes <laughs> that uh, finds an excuse for people and countries to continue to do the things that they're, they're doing and must stop. So I'm really hoping that the, the, this uh, next climate conference begins to apply the integrity of the actions they need to take. And really, as has been said, the moral responsibility, because otherwise uh, we're really not addressing what science is telling us. We're not addressing the, the everyday life of the people uh, you go to Palau or Kiribati or any islands of the Pacific, uh, the, the ocean acidification is a reality. There's coral bleaching that are destroying our reefs. There's uh, a, a tremendous frequency of stormy weathers, uh, including typhoons and, and, and earthquakes. There's the sea level rise that uh, are affecting the livelihood and relocation of our people. So it doesn't matter where the emission of uh, the greenhouse gas is uh, happening, uh, whether in the Pacific or in Australia, it's happening around the world and the impacts is affecting us small island nations of the Pacific. So I'm, at the very least, I'm hoping that the, the conference uh, uh, really begin to, to do the right thing to do and, and bridge the gap between what has been said and what needs to be done. Um, becoming a, a quite a, a, a re repetition, I should say, of stating the problem, but not enough uh, uh, actions and the solutions. <clears throat> Just sticking with um, oceans for a little while, President Romenga Sao, uh, you've talked there about some of the impacts of ocean acidification and sea level rise. I just wondered if you could give us a bit more detail of that. 
Um, Australia obviously is a coastal nation, but I, I imagine we're nowhere near as reliant on our oceans uh, as the Pacific Islands are, nor are we seeing um, as much as people in the Pacific Islands would be experiencing these direct impacts of the changes in climate right now. You talked about sea level rise forcing people to move, but also affecting crops and things like that. What are some of the practical impacts that your people are already experiencing? Well, the practical impacts is that uh, um, it's becoming very costly for the government to deal with this. Uh, we have to borrow money from the development banks to address these things. And, and, and at the rate we're going, we're, we're not going to be able to uh, pay the debts, let alone address the problems that uh, needs to be done. So, yes, it's not just the ocean uh, that's being affected. It's the, uh, the, the El Nino and the La Nina uh, in, impacts on our people that uh, really needs uh, uh, partnership. It needs fi financing. It needs uh, uh, technology. It needs uh, the, the people to step up on, on their responsibilities. And I think that's the message we are also uh, putting out that we're a family from the Pacific. And when you say family, it includes Australia as the big brother. So how do we approach this as a family? Australia has so much to contribute in its leadership role, uh, not only on financing, but on contacts and, and, and providing the, uh, the voice that is needed to be heard from uh, beyond and across, the, not only across, but beyond the Pacific. So, so that's the reality. And it makes us even more worried when the, the security discussions these days are really about the defense and military uh, geopolitical uh, considerations, where the heart and soul of the people are not on, on climate change, which is the, the true security of, of our people. Um, so if we are going to survive, we have to put more uh, efforts into what is being done and step up forward. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. This is a question for both of you, but first to you, President Tong. Uh, climate finance will be a major point of contention at the upcoming climate conference. Should wealthy countries like Australia be scaling up its financial contributions? And more specifically, can I ask about the Green Climate Fund? Uh, I know Australia pulled out of that in the past, uh, and I, I think we're the only wealthy country now that's not contributing um, <clears throat> to that main climate fund. How important is climate finance? 
Okay, we have allocated the answers to the questions between us, but then let me touch on it. And of course, uh, my colleague um, will uh, uh, just add on what he. Um, Australia, I think, um, uh, has been reneging on a lot of what's the, what the other global um, members of the global community, uh, the developed members of the global community have been contributing. And I think that was a deliberate decision by your own former administration, I guess. And uh, so Australia is well short of what it needed to do. Uh, and of course, as one of the countries, um, Australia is by far the greatest, the biggest development partner that we have. And uh, there is a tendency to rebrand what was um, the existing uh, development assistance into climate finance, okay? Uh, we need to be careful that we don't do this and we, not, we must not be confused because these are different, okay? What, is, what needs to be understood is apart from the development uh, uh, capital that we need in terms of, to, uh, in order to uh, undertake our development, we are also now having to deal with the um, ever increasing impacts of climate change. And so that will get worse and it would need additional resources on top of what already has been uh, provided. And so whether that comes through the Green Climate Fund or another, another um, vehicle, I think uh, the, the, the reality is, yes, we will need additional finance. And the question is, should countries like Australia and other countries who have the, the, the capacity to do it, provided, I, I believe so. I think um, it's not really asking for more. We're just asking for to do what we are losing. In other words, um, um, compensation for the damages that we are suffering, not just now, but into the future. If, mm -hmm. I'm sure Mr. my my, uh, my colleague would like to add to, to that. Yeah, it's. I think the stark and troubling point uh, is the... Australia is the only wealthy country that is not contributing uh, to the United Nations um, climate uh, really? fund. Uh, and so th this is something we, we hope Australia can return to the table and be a, a leadership on this uh, particular climate financing that is needed. And secondly, I, I think the message that we're also bringing is that uh, we can pursue win-win situation for Australia and for the Pacific in the areas of renewable energy. This is something that can really make a big difference for island governments and island communities, while at the same time also good for the people of Australia, as has been indicated by uh, Richie in the public opinions as to how we should be dealing with the alternatives uh, uh, that are available. And then I, we also want to bring to the tables the, the fact that it's not just climate financing, but perhaps a public-private partnerships in these uh, ventures. There is so much that the, uh, the leadership of Australia, the United States, uh, Japan, and all, they can also promote the investments in, on the islands on renewable energy. And, and so the, the island countries won't find it necessary to go and lend money from developing banks, uh, like Asian development banks or the World Bank uh, to, to do these uh, things that are needed. You know, uh, power generation is the, one of the most expensive cost of running a government right now in the trade, using fossil fuel. Uh, and solar energy is free, the renewable other objectives are there. Uh, why not have a partnership of, uh, uh, of governments and, and private sector uh, and the capital necessary to come to the islands 
do the infrastructure and get their money back in a, in a, a time period that we can all agree on. But uh, again, this is the leadership that the big countries needs to take. Australia, United States, and, and Japan. And I keep saying, it's not just a matter of grants and give the islands more money, but you know, invest in the private sector, support the private sector developments, because somebody is gonna step in and, and do that outside of the family. And I, I think you know what I mean. You know, somebody stepping up to do what the family needs to do for themselves. Yeah. Um, speaking of the United States, uh, President Biden is hosting the first US Pacific Island Country Summit later this month. We have seen a high level of engagement from the new Australian government uh, within days of taking over. And again, with Prime Minister Albanese's attendance at the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, what do you make of the new Australian government's engagement and interest, President Tom? Well, it's uh, it's, it's it's very clear. I think it was made very clear at uh, the forum meeting that Australia is here to be a part of the Pacific region again. It's part of the family. Um, we've learned, of course, the, uh, the commitment on the climate uh, is something that's uh, obviously welcomed by the Pacific Island countries. We uh, we have over the the, the the last few days witnessed the the, the passing of the, the legislation on that, which is very welcome. And uh, and uh, so Australia um, is now really seen as wanting to participate again, to be a part of the family that perhaps it was taken for granted for quite some time in the past. And now it's a time to renew relationships. And I think we welcome that. The question will be, how will this be taken and in the context of what's already also happening in the region? There are new partners wanting to, to be a part of the Pacific Island uh, process. And so the, it, it would be said that there is now competition, okay? And uh, it's a concern, I'm sure, for, for Australia, for some of the Pacific Island countries, it, it's a welcome, uh, a new focus of attention. We share many things in common with Australia. We, we share the democratic system of government. We are modeled on our former colonial past, okay? And so most of us have that. And so we have tended to you know, stay together with um, Australia, New Zealand, and the, uh, the, the former Commonwealth uh, 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 countries. And so the question would be, you know, it's the renewed uh, engagement by Australia. What is it driven, being driven by? And how far will that commitment go? Because there is very strong competition coming in from China and we must not uh, beat around the issue because that is a new player in, in, in town and they are a various, very serious new player. And of course it will have an impact on the, um, the focus on the, what is the most critical security issue for the region, which is climate change, not the competition between the superpowers. And one of the messages we want to deliver while here is, okay, we, we know this is going on, but let us let it not distract us from the main issue, which is climate, uh, the climate uh, challenge. And so in this context, um, Australia, is it gone far enough? And I think we go back to the, the um, emission levels. And I think I repeat the same message again. What is Australia committing to via the legislation is still short of what, what the science says needs to be done in order that uh, we will survive beyond 2060 because we have been given, according to the sixth assessment report of the IPCC, beyond 2060, countries like ours may not be habitable. 
And the question is, is Australia doing enough to avoid that? And I think we know the answer to that. Unless there is more stepping up or deeper cutting, uh, deeper cuts in emission, including exported emissions, I don't think we're going to survive that. Yeah, it's a grim reminder of exactly what is at stake. Um, <clears throat> Australia has put up its hand to host a United Nations Climate Conference, which it would like to do in partnership with Pacific Island nations. Um, I guess I'll ask you both, what would Pacific nations look for in a partner like Australia? And how important do you think this would be to, I guess, put some more pressure on Australia to really lift its game? Obviously, we've got a new government that's more interested in climate, but as you've both outlined, we're, we're not uh, adequately meeting what the science demands. Um, so, yeah, what would Pacific nations look for in a partner like Australia to co-host a COP? I'm looking forward to Australia and the Pacific uh, hosting the, the, the COP and not be embarrassed of ourselves. Uh, we have to do our responsibility as host and uh, we would like to be uh, a positive example to the rest of the world that we're hosting because we have done some meaningful uh, changes. We have done some meaningful work that makes us uh, want to share those uh, results with the rest of the world and to seek the partnership of the rest of the world to what we're doing. Uh, because things can, as, as they continue like now, uh, I wouldn't want to host uh, something, uh, invite somebody to my home, uh, because they're going to say, "Get your house in order first before you, you, you know, you are trying to tell us what uh, what to do." So I think, very, uh, very frankly, Australia needs to stop the new exploitations or uh, explorations for uh, gas and, and, and gold. Uh, they need to focus on renewable energy, uh, renewables, because that's that's really part of the solution not just for Australia, but for the Pacific. And, and then the third thing, of course, is to take the leadership on, on what the global obligations are, the Green Climate Fund and, and the technology shifting of, uh, the, uh, of priorities to the areas that uh, needs to make a difference. I think with that, uh, I get, we can all support. Uh, uh, let me just add uh, to our friend, the United States, uh, and be very frank about it. Uh, the United States uh, leadership was not there in the last four years. And we were all hoping after Paris that uh, we will uh, see the, uh, the strong uh, commitment and the strong leadership uh, by the United States, Australia, and, and all our close friends and partners. But it didn't happen. So this is, uh, again, we're, we're, we're at a, a, a crossroad where uh, it's not just the United States, but uh, Australia, Japan, Europe. They need to, to take the, 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 the ethical, the, the moral leadership that must be there in order for others to say, yeah, we, we have a chance. Would you like to add something to that, President Tong? I want just simply to add that um, we, I guess we, we have to address this in, in a different discussion, but uh, if Australia is going to be, uh, it's going to credibly believe that it's, it's going to wants to host and in partnership with the Pacific Island countries, whose very livelihood uh, is at stake 
Then, but if at the same time it continues its coal and gas exports, it would be a very, very clear mm -hmm. uh, contradiction. And I think we, we're not, okay, we're not silly enough not to see that, okay? We understand that. Because it's not about hosting the COP. It's about cutting emissions. And this is what the COP must be all about. Cutting emissions so that disaster that is coming can be avoided. It's unfortunate, and I've watched this over the different changes of administrations in different countries, that climate change has been one of the political footballs around. And that is totally, it's very unfortunate. I think Australia, as a, as a people, are coming to understand that that can no longer happen, continue to happen. And I'm so happy to see that happening. But at the political level, we need to stop playing that game because lives are at stake. We're listening to Radio 3CR and the Regional Climate Diplomacy Forum at the Australia Institute. Well, this is uh, definitely uh, tied in with the moral responsibility of nations to, to be able to deliver on what their commitments are. Uh, obviously, we're nowhere close to the targets that have been uh, committed. And so work on the ground, work on the, uh, on, on the level of the community really has to step up. And uh, that can also involve uh, uh, multilateral or bilateral uh, uh, partnerships. Uh, and as I said, uh, the, the private sector has a lot of uh, role and responsibility to, to be a part of the equation. Um, there's a tendency to see that, to say that it's a global problem and therefore a global fund is needed. But sometimes uh, the sheer bureaucracy the sheer uh, challenge of uh, addressing and accessing those assistance are just not fast enough nor accurate enough to to really focus on the uh, on the, on the problems of the uh, of the land so uh, I, I think we have to look at it from all perspective and from all angles but at the end of the day it's what is effective what is efficient to get the people out of their miseries, because we're not talking about prevention. We're actually talking about adaptation and uh, mitigation and loss of damage. Those are the three things that are already, people are drowning and need help in. Yeah, we, of course, there is no existing legal regime to hold these people to account. Uh, and that is very unfortunate because the international legal system does not address that. There is something that is needed because people, uh, the countries uh, don't have the moral, sufficient moral capacity to do the right thing on their own, mm -hmm. especially if they really are not the ones in control, but are being controlled by other interests. And that is a sad reality that we are beginning to hear and beginning to understand that uh, some, maybe sometimes, in the, and I think this is worldwide, I remember listening to uh, the, the, uh, the American economist, Jeffrey Sachs, when he came here in 2018, and he said, he talked about regulatory capture. And what it is, is um, when the, the governments which are supposed to regulate are being uh, captured by the entities they're supposed to regulate. And that is very sad. And so for countries like ours, if we cannot cut emissions, we would have to find somewhere else to go. Okay, and so 
this come that raises a an, an different uh, challenge entirely. And so the issue of climate-induced migration is as up and coming, it's inevitable, but yet it's not sufficient discussion around that at the international level. We're listening to Radio 3CR and the Regional Climate Diplomacy Forum at the Australia Institute. Uh, excellent. The next question I've got is from Richard Bentley. Uh, he says, Australian banks defend their loans to gas and coal companies by claiming they are advising them on pathways to carbon neutrality. Could we establish an equivalent process by which we ensure customers purchasing products um, uh, have plans to transition to a carbon-free future or even taxing the exporters to provide assistance uh, to customers in the transition. What are some of the ways um, that we can tackle some of those elements of civil society that participate in the fossil fuel industry in other ways like finance? Um, President Tong, if I could ask you that one. Mm -hmm. Well, it's um, finance has always been the driving power behind all of this. If uh, there was um, worldwide agreement that uh, no further investment should be directed towards uh, the opening of new coal mines, the digging up of uh, new uh, fossil fuel, then obviously that uh, would go a long way towards um, pushing the, um, the, 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 the fossil fuel industries not to be able to expand. And so again, maybe it's a factor of the, the, the capitalist system which, which, which we seem to have embraced, okay? It is unfortunate, but uh, capitalism, of course, the greatest dogma is greed is great, no matter what. And I think that's been the problem, this insatiable, uh, insatiable drive for more wealth, okay? And which is so regrettable that it's so, it's so owned by so, so few, okay? But at the cost to so many, it is very, very unfortunate. And I, I've always wondered how we could reverse this because even our own governments are not able to withstand the pressure that is coming. And so there, there was some discussion earlier about the, um, the chlorofluorocarbons, okay? That was successful. And the reason I believe is because one, there was a substitute identified, but more importantly, they didn't have the power that now that we are facing with the fossil fuel industry to resist that. And so here we are. How can we do it? It's maybe the governments are not um, doing what they should be doing. And uh, how else? I'm, I continue to rake my mind how we might get the, the fossil fuel industry to become more moral. I think uh, we had experience at the global level with the tobacco industry. We are trying to deal with the fossil fuel industry. It's far more powerful. Let me just add on to, to the really important uh, consideration of public uh, education, public perception, and, I, and, and the strong need for civil societies and, and NGOs to really do the, re the research, the data, and, and the accountability of many of these uh, government actions and announcements and, and what needs to be done. I think at the end of the day, it's all about really a transparency of how fast or how effective or how where we need to go. And many times, especially with small island governments, this kind of information are not necessarily ready or available. And so we need to, again, work together, uh, whether it's the government accounting of it or the civil societies or private sector 
to put up the accurate picture and the accurate accountability that our people deserve. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Richie, I might ask you to come in here. Australia obviously um, has huge uh, gas and coal exports. Our banking system is, is still very involved in there. Um, what does Australia really have to do to come to grips with this in the short term? Yeah, it, it, it's a, a big concern um, in the sense that you have over 100 new fossil fuel projects in Australia. It's about over 70 coal, uh, over 40 gas. Um, and so the pipeline is there. Now, not all those projects will, will be up and running, but even just taking a handful of those projects and looking at the emissions just in Australia from digging up all that new coal and gas, you're looking at blowing out any budget to, to maintaining 43%. Um, but the bigger problem is they're still getting finance both from pri the private sector and from the public sector. Mm -hmm. Now, the Paris Agreement has three goals, which you know, and the presidents are clearly aware of having helped negotiate them. One is to reduce emissions. The second is to adapt to the unavoidable impacts. And then the third is to align finance with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And that hasn't really happened. Yeah. And that's not just obviously private companies that put profits first, but even public entities. Mm -hmm. In Australia, um, we, we asked direct, um, the there was a, a question put towards one of the financing agencies, the public financing agencies, Export Finance Australia. And they said that the Paris Agreement didn't really deal with their project financing. And they have since funded numerous fossil fuel projects. This is a public agency. And so this is the problem. The 43% bill that was recently passed did go to some extent in forcing some of these agencies, these public agencies to at least consider climate change when they make their financing goals. That's a very useful start. It won't be the end of it. They probably will, you know, still factor in how they do business, but it's a start and it's regulating our financial institutions, public and private, to consider climate change as part of their criteria for financing that I think is essential. And that's something that governments across the world should be looking at doing both in terms of their financing, but then also the private sector. Yeah. Um, what does that 43% emissions reduction target mean for the Pacific? Well, it's, um, it doesn't, as I said, I think earlier, and I've said throughout our visit, it doesn't go far enough to ensuring that, uh, guaranteeing that our, our, our grandchildren, my grandchildren, will be able to be guaranteed uh, a future. And... Um, the question really is uh, the, the, the reduction of 43%, how is it being counted, okay? We must ask that, that question as well. Does it include um, uh, counting uh, what credits are being cross-credited over, okay? Because otherwise it becomes just a, um, a posturing move. It's, and we understand that um, politics is important, but if politics you know, is no longer relevant to the realities of, uh, of what it is that we are facing. Uh, may, maybe Australia can continue to, to, to function, but as I said earlier, countries like ours in the Pacific 
will have been underwater by then. Many of them will not be habitable. And so the question is, are we still in, 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 in line to meet our 1.5 degree um, uh, rise in global temperature? I believe not. And so Australia needs to really um, go much further than that. And I think it's got to be a bit more transparent. And the science, the science is very clear. And so I'm sure your government understand that. But of course, your people may not be fully conversant with how the numbers are being used to, to transmit a, a message. But uh, from our perspective, it does not guarantee the safety of our future generations. Uh, if I might ask a bit of a cheeky question uh, before we finish up, um, we've recently seen the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the beginning of the reign of King Charles III. Uh, both of you served multiple terms uh, and had extensive uh, careers in politics. Any reflection on uh, such a long reign for the monarch or on King Charles and his well-known advocacy for climate change action? Well, first of all, uh, we definitely send our condolences and respect to the Queen. Uh, she has been a, a worldwide uh, figure of uh, uh, dignity and stability and, and leadership. And I think that's uh, a char character that uh, we all want from our leader. Uh, Charles is really uh, a friend of uh, of the small island uh, nations because many of the things that we've heard him address climate change and other ocean or uh, climate change forums have really been uh, in, uh, inclusive, I should say. Uh, for instance, he talked about pollution in the ocean uh, with plastic and how the microplastic DNA is actually the, the, uh, one of the hazards or one of the, uh, um, the dangers for, for the world and for those of us who eat fish. Uh, in our diet, it, it, uh, very, it is very concerning that uh, our fish uh, are eating uh, DNA plastics and therefore it's not going to be uh, conducive to our good health in the long run. Mm. So he is somebody that we are very much uh, uh, in support of with his uh, strong position and support for climate change and especially not just for developed nations, but the people most affected uh, by climate change. President Tong, would you like to add anything? Most certainly, um, yeah, most certainly. We, of course, extend our condolences to the the, the, the people of the United Kingdom, the family of uh, the, the late Queen. Of course, you Australians also as uh, as your your head, former head of state, and uh, and of course uh, she's been such an epitome of grace. I've had the pleasure of meeting Her Majesty on more than one occasion, and. Um, it's always amazing how she can make, she seems to be a bright light in the middle of uh, uh, wherever she, 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 she is. And I, that's always been the impression that I've made of uh, Her Majesty. The, the transfer of, um, of the, the monarchy to King Charles is uh, it's a welcome one. I, I suppose it was always expected that it would happen one day. And the question is, are we ready for it? And the question is, is he ready for it? And I, I know there's been talk around different regions of the Commonwealth about um, moving away from having the, uh, the, 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 the King of England as monarch, uh, as head of state in the different countries here in Australia. 
I know you've been looking, examining that. This is not the right time to be talking about it. I understand that. But yet these are the realities that uh, we will face in the, the days ahead. And of course, uh, uh, King, King Charles III, um, uh, before he became the monarch, had always been a very strong advocate for, for the environment and, and climate change. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, interact with him on this, and he's always been very strong on these issues. And uh, listening to his opening statement when he, on becoming king, uh, he indicated that he will be stepping down from some of these commitments. And I don't think climate change uh, advocacy should be one of the ones that he stepped down because it's a lifeblood for people, uh, not just in our part of the world, but here in Australia. You need all of the advocacy that you need, especially now that he's become the head of state, not just of the United Kingdom, but those countries that continue to have the, the, the monarch in, in the United Kingdom as head of state. I would like to challenge him to, to, to say, you know, stay on board, please. We need you on board so that we can deal with this uh, uh, vexing issue of climate change. And of course, that shouldn't really be political, should it? <laughs> no, not at all. We're listening to Radio 3CR, to the Regional Climate Diplomacy Forum at the Australia Institute. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. to the Edmund Rice Centre, the Pacific Calling Partnership and the Australia Institute for bringing us former President of Kiribati, Anote Tong, and former President of Palau, Tommy Remengesau, plus Ebony Bennett and Richie Merzian from the Australia Institute. They were part of the Regional Climate Diplomacy Forum. The music was Ta'o Tana from Small Island, Big Sound. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. No emana Aneye Heu yewatu a Kotero a o Aheku e Ye yoi Heraia Tu ara to mo era e ara he kuyu ai Otero a omo tute atue Kote ara mauni ya ue 
Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. Children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. 